Alright, uh, well welcome to New Philadelphia Church. Summer is always a time when we have a ton of visitors and so it's always awesome to know that no matter where in the world you are from, uh, you can find family here. And so if this is your first time visiting us here, welcome. We hope that you like us somewhat. You feel God's presence here and that you would even consider, you know, sticking around even after service, whether you know people or not, that's okay. Um, a lot of us here are relatively new and so you'll blend right in. Um, so yeah, feel free to stay afterwards and, uh, get pizza and watch a movie. I I think the whole idea behind it is let's spend as little time outdoors as possible (laughs) because of the heat. So we're going to just stay in and order in and it's going to be really relaxed, really chill. Um, all right. So for those who missed last week's message, last week I shared about how we're taking the time to actually comb through passages that have been very, uh, kind of crucial in shaping our church in the last 10 years. And so we said how about the, the last 10 years, the, the direction that we've taken, the way that we've seen the church take form, um, it is very highly dependent on particular passages that we've leaned on very heavily in the past. And so now, at, after 10 years and now going through a season of healing and now seeking the Lord once again, asking for new direction, uh, we're taking the time to actually almost like retracing our steps, making sure that what was in the past, we're not just, you know, discounting altogether in order to move forward, but we're taking the time to pray through, think through, meditate through these passages in order for us to move forward, taking with us what God wants us to take forward with us. So last week, we went through this passage, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. And this is where we get the new for New Philadelphia for, from from this passage. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up, do you not perceive it? And last week, we were kind of honing in on, do you not perceive it? So whether we believe that God moved through the former leadership in the former 10 years or despite it, it doesn't really matter. We have to admit that this passage has everything to do with what we're going through right now. This passage, when you read it from this point in time, you read it and it means something completely different. And it has something um, for us to learn from right now in this point in time. It's like... The same way that Isaiah, we talked about how this was a prophecy from Isaiah. He was talking about a generation in 200 years that would need that word, that would need to remember, forget the former things, see I'm doing a new thing. In the same way that God planted a word 200 years before it was needed, perhaps even in our own life cycle of this church, perhaps God planted something even embedded it in our very own name 10 years before we would actually need it. Does that make sense? So it's almost like God hiding and embedding and planting uh, a verse for us to cling on to 10 years in advance. And so now this is a season where we're realizing, oh, that's maybe what he meant. This is what it looks like to forget former things. This is what it looks like to perceive what God is doing in the now. So it's as if God knew that we would go through a season where we'd be confronted with the things of the past that we needed to leave behind. We would need to perceive the new thing that he's doing here and now, and we'd need to take heart and arm ourselves with courage to step into the things for the future. 
So last week we kind of honed in on, do you not perceive it? And we watched a video, right? And we had, we thought we were pretty perceptive, right? Until we watched the video. And then you realize that something can happen right under your nose without you even realizing it because you're simply not paying attention or perhaps your attention is redirected to something else, perhaps something, um, that is not as obvious. So you watch the video and we talked about how, you know, this passage from Isaiah 43, it was prophesied by Isaiah 200 years before it actually came to pass. And it was addressed to a people that would be taken captive from their land. People who would need to know that there would be a day when God would bring them back to the holy city. People who had to turn their backs from their city and their nation that was up in flames, that was under the hands of their enemies. And they would have to know that in the same way that God had led them away, he would bring them back into that holy city. People who would be tested to believe and see something that perhaps they didn't see signs for in the natural, but based on God's promise. And we also, I'm just kind of reviewing here. We also talked about how that act of deliverance, it wasn't a one-time thing. It wasn't an isolated event. It was one of many instances of deliverance where God acted on behalf of his people. It wasn't a one in a million kind of thing, but it was an act of deliverance in the midst of many moments in history when God would show himself to be mighty to save. He was the God who brought deliverance, not just from the Babylonians, which is, you know, who the people to whom Isaiah 43 was directed to, but also he was a God who delivered Israelites from Egyptians, from Assyrians, from Persians, from Romans, etc., etc. It was all a foreshadowing of an even greater deliverance that would come. The great deliverer, the great redeemer, the great savior would come in the form of a baby in a manger. And he wouldn't just come to deliver us from a mere political power, but from the reign of sin and death. So he came not just to deliver us from perhaps, what, 70, 80, God, 90 years of political oppression. He came to deliver us from an eternity without God. And so bringing, uh, and, and bringing this mind, uh, this verse to mind, we asked ourselves three different questions. What are the former things we need to leave behind? What is a new thing we need to perceive and what does it mean to walk in the way in the desert and drink from the streams in the wasteland? And today we'll be zooming in on that last question. We'll be focusing on an important aspect of this passage and it'll be, what does it mean that God opens up a way in the desert? What does it mean when God opens up a way in the desert? I want to start out just with perhaps a, a quote. It's actually a song that I recently stumbled on and it kind of hit home for me because as Pastor Emily um, announced a little while ago um, on Saturdays, we've been taking the time to actually re-examine our preconceived notions, the, the kind of cultural lens through which we see life. And oftentimes we think in the same way that we think that we're really perceptive until we get tricked by a moonwalking bear, like in last week's video, in the same way that we think that, we also tend to think that our point of view is neutral, is default. It's like tolerance and intellectualism, secularism, pluralism, all these things are, are neutral. They, they are not culturally ingrained. And yet as we're taking the time to actually 
re-examine these preconceived notions that we have, we actually realize we're very, very biased in the way that we look at life, the way that we see our faith, the way that we look at the word. And so as we've been working through some very tough and very important questions at our Saturday class, uh, questions like how is humanism, secularism, how's the industrial revolution, even things like that that we take for granted, how has that affected our worldview as Christians? It has been a really eye-opening time of scrutinizing our values and perception that we assume is objective. And so in the midst of that, I came across this song written by Jason Upton, and it's, I think, from a, an album like last year or something. This is part of the lyrics, and it says, There was a time not long ago when the sun did shine, and the sower sowed, and the rain did rain, and the crops did grow. It was a time before machinery, a time before certainty, a time before we bought the lie. It was a time before the farmer died. When we had trusting hearts and human soul, it was a time not very long ago, not very long ago, when we trusted you, Lord, we want to trust you again. And the whole point, it isn't, you know, the old times are better or like technology is evil. That's not the point. I believe the point is asking ourselves the question, could it be that part of growing up in a world where we're taught to have much control over our lives, to not be at the mercy of anything or or anything or any person growing up in this kind of world, could it have affected our view of God as well? So for example, right now it's really hot outside, but we're inside in an air conditioned room. We are in full heat, full summer, and yet we're immune to it right now because we have the ability to control this particular space. So the fact that we can, we're not at the mercy of the elements of nature, that already is something that we take for granted. For example, crop growing with genetic modification. So I'm not at the mercy of harvest cycles. I can get strawberries any time of the year now, apparently, you know, I can get watermelon, the size I want, the color I want, the taste I want, all these things that here, you know, or do sit. Sorry, you don't get a watermelon for another year, you know, or like if there's no strawberries, there's no strawberries. No matter what you do, you're not going to get a strawberry. So even that idea that we are being raised in a world where we can control a lot of previously uncontrollable things, a lot of things that we used to be like, oh, well, that's the way life is. If it rains, great. If it doesn't, we don't have a harvest for this year. Even something like that, being raised in a world where not even distance or geography is is now a limitation. We can Skype with someone anywhere in the world right now from this very room. Even that is not a limitation to us. So we are raised in a world and in a generation where we think that there's not very many things out of my control. Like I can manipulate whatever I need to manipulate as much as, as long as I have money or means or something. I don't need really faith to survive anymore. That's the kind of world that we live in where faith now is a bonus, is an extra, it's an extracurricular after school activity. You know, it's not like survival need is faith. It's like, well, if you want to go the extra mile, if you want to be religious, if you want to be spiritual, then you actually need faith to survive. But it used to not be that way. But here's the thing. 
we believe that we don't need faith right now or as much faith as we once did to survive. But in actuality, we are exercising faith, but it's just a different God on the pedestal. It's not God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now it's either technology, it's ourselves, it's a God, it's a world politician. It is something else that we are having faith in. It's a God that's perhaps a bit more manipulable, a God that's more handleable, more controllable. And that isn't the God of the universe. So this is the kind of world that we are raised in. And this, these are the kind of things that we already assume as being part of this generation. So if we take a second look at this passage, once again, what we're going to do is we're going to actually look at the surrounding verses today. And we're going to kind of from the context, get a tease a bit more of the meaning out of it. So the surrounding passages, the, the verses that preceded and come right after it, it's a part of a longer discourse regarding what God was about to do in 200 years. Remember, this is prophet Isaiah prophesying about something that's going to be happening in 200 years. This is back when they're like, I don't know what a Babylonian is. What do you mean? Babylonians are going to come and take you captive. And then you're going to come back to your land. We're still in our land right now. What are you talking about? And so it didn't make sense then, but this is Isaiah talking about what God was about to do in 200 years from then. And we're going to look at this first part. And this is what it says. This is what the Lord says. Your redeemer, the Holy one of Israel for your sake, I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. So basically, he's saying, in the same way that they led you in chains from your burning city, I, the Lord your God, I'm going to lead them also in chains away from their rubble, their city, in those things that they actually took military pride in. So you can replace ships with tanks with, I don't know, whatever form of military warfare they had back then. So it would be like our nuclear bombs and our jets and our whatevers. That's exactly what he's talking about. Whatever you took pride in, that's going to be your downfall. And that's what you're going to come, um, come away from in utter defeat. Whatever you use to enslave others, that will be what you escape and defeat with. And then it continues on to say, I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's creator, your king. This is God's way of saying, there's nothing I cannot do. There's no one like me. And I am the one who created you as a nation. And I am also the one to reign over it. That is what he says. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's creator, your king. And just in case you don't believe that, just in case you don't think God's capable of doing that, the next part, it transports us back, you know, not forward 200 years, but back 500 years before this writing to the book of Exodus. And this is what God reminds them of. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty water. So he's telling them, don't forget, not too long ago, your ancestors saw my mighty hand and my outstretched arm after the empire of Egypt, what looked indestructible, what looked like it would never fall. That empire of Egypt, it was defeated 10 times over by the 10 plagues by God of Ab by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And the Israelites were coming out of that empire that seemed indestructible. They were coming out of it rejoicing in their newfound freedom from slavery. They come into the desert, and as they are rejoicing, right in front of them, they see something that looks impenetrable, something that, an obstacle that is not like, oh, I'm going to just, you know, roll up my pants sleeves, you know, pants sleeves, are they sleeves? Pant legs, pant legs. I'm going to roll up my pant legs and wade through. No, it's a sea. It's a sea. It's not going anywhere. And it's not like 12 dudes who can kind of, you know, swim through. It is millions of people with livestock, with their children on their back, with their belongings. It's millions of people that are coming to the edge of this sea. And they're simply just following this pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, right? So it's not like, God, are you sure? Like, they're sure. The pillar is there. You know, it's there. That's God, right? And as they're wondering what they're going to do now, they turn around and they see something in the distance. It looks like, I don't know, something out in the horizon. And then slowly but surely, they realize it's an entire army coming for them for revenge. I want you guys to picture this, okay? Because it's, sometimes we think like, man, these Israelites, they just had no faith. It lasted like 10 minutes. Like their faith lasted for 10 minutes. I can do better than that. But you have to think, okay? You have to think. You have your U-Haul. Yeah, like you just moved all your stuff, right? You have your U-Haul and you're like right at the edge of something that you can't cross over. And then all of a sudden, you see that you, what you thought were the enemies that you left behind are now enemies that are coming back for revenge. And they're like, they're like dotting the landscape, and they're coming after you hear a rumble behind you, and you turn around, and that's what you see. And there's nowhere to turn. You can't be like, okay, okay. Like, you're right at the edge, and you're like, where do I go? You can't go around this way. They'll catch up with us then. We can't go up again. We can't go forward. And so they're in a position where they're pinned right up against an obstacle that looks impenetrable. And this is after God had shown his might and his victory over their enemies. They're pinned right up against the sea. And then in that context, this is what the Lord does. He made a way through the sea a path through the mighty waters. He drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together. Drew out the chariots and horses, the army. So this is what God is saying. I've never seen this part before. I've never paid attention to it before. So it's not just that God sent them out and he just split the sea. God sent them out and he pulled at chariots horses, enemies behind them. God was the one who did that. He brought their enemies to them, right? And it wasn't for the demise and the destruction of the Israelites. It was for the destruction of their enemies. God drew them out. He brought them there, not to battle against the Israelites, but to drown them forever in the Red Sea. That is what God did. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't just the uh, Egyptians thinking, hey, wait a minute. Our slaves are gone. How are we going to uphold our you know, economy? We need slaves. Let's go after them. It wasn't that. It was God drawing out the chariots, drawing out the horses, an entire army for them to be drowned 
in the sea. They will be swallowed up by the waters that had parted for those under God's protection, never to rise again. And that's what God is reminding them that he had done. And then we come to this passage. Forget the former things. Do not dwell in the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams and the wasteland. In this context, remember, Isaiah has just reminded you of what happened 500 years ago. In this context, what we think are former things might not be just chronologically what's past. Because, again, Isaiah was just saying, remember, God did this 500 years ago. And then he says, forget the former. Th-. You're like, you want me to remember? You want me to forget? Like, what, what, pick one, right? Right? So it's not, he's not saying forget what God has done. He say, leave those former things behind. Leave the Egypt behind. Leave the enemy that was dead and drowned in the Red Sea. Leave those things behind because God is opening up a way for us to remember. It's not forgetting the former things God did because he's asking us to remember. It's not the providence and the provision of God because he's asking us not to forget. It's the land of slavery in the past. It's the enemies that came up after us. Leave those things behind, whether it be Egyptians or Babylonians or Assyrians or Romans or whoever it is. Behold, God is doing something new. And now I'm going to ask you this question. And this is a question that I ask myself when I read this passage. Why the desert? Why can't it be? Look, I'm doing a new thing. And there's like prairies and like bunnies and, you know, God's way of deliverance for me feels a little bit underwhelming, right? It's like, oh, great. We got more desert, (laughs) right? It's like, I'm opening up a way in the desert, you know, you're like, good, but why desert? Why must there be more desert? So that's the question that we're going to kind of wrestle with today. Why does it need to be desert? And I think as we talk about this, we might get a little bit more clarity, perhaps even about what God is calling our church to as well as the church of New Philadelphia, right? The first thing, the first reason why it's desert is that it is an environment that will expose our idols. There's no way around it. When things are good, when there's food on the table, when you have a roof over your head, when things are going well for you, there's plenty of room for idols to hide. You have all kinds of idols. You can cultivate them. You can raise them. You can multiply them. You can stack them one on top of the other. There's so much room for idolatry. But when you're in the desert, there's just no place to hide. This is just an example. Has anybody here gone through extreme financial distress? And that's the moment where you realize that you believe, even though you don't say it with your mouth, somewhere deep inside, you believe that your destiny, your welfare, your safety, all of that is pegged on a bank account, on money. It's not until that is tested that you realize like, wow, if I'm losing sleep over this, then it means that I believe that this, like my life hangs in the balance and the one thing that will determine whether I make it out of this okay, the one thing that would give me sleep at night would be finances. 
And that is my idol. And you never see it until that moment when you're confronted with it. Now, in the case of Israel, as we saw, you know, a few weeks back, and we talked about how in Exodus, as soon as they you know, got out into the desert and then Moses was up in the mountain, instead of the people, you know, waiting patiently, they did for 40 days. I'll give them that much, right? They waited for 40 days. And they had no idea if Moses was ever going to come back, right? It's not like Moses can be like, sorry, like, um, I, let me text you. Um, I'm getting held up a little bit, so can you hang on for a few more days? There was no word about Moses. And they're down there waiting for 40 days. And the waiting time, what they decided to do was make a golden calf. Right. And it wasn't that it wasn't that the calf was formed and created right there. And then it was already in their hearts. Their idol was already in their hearts long before there was a golden calf on an altar. There was a golden calf in their hearts. And there's things in the same way that God needs to kill in the wilderness before it kills us. So sometimes when we think about our enemies. And when we think about our hardships, we think about an external force somewhere out there. Like my enemy is out there and that is a problem and God, you need to deal with that. But what happens when the enemy is within, not without, when the idols are inside of you, how does God deal with that? You you can't just say, kill me, right? (laughs) Your idols are within. Your pride is within. All the things that you're worshiping instead of God are within. How does God deal with that? The first thing he does is he needs to expose it for what it is. He needs to bring it out to the surface. Wherever it's hidden, it needs to come out. And the best way for it to do it is in an environment, an environment that will give you no option but to pinpoint what it is that your sustenance, your significance, your worth, your safety is on. Until that point, you don't know what your idol is. And so why the desert? The first reason is it's an environment that will expose our idols. Whatever idol inside of you that says, I'm a master of my own fate, or I am my own God, or there is no God, whatever that idol is, it will be exposed when you come into the desert. Second thing, it is an environment that will starve out our self-sufficiency, and human ingenuity. So the desert is a place where we finally reach the point and realize that we are, in fact, spiritually bankrupt. We are, in fact, morally destitute. We are unable to save ourselves. We are unable to protect ourselves. We are unable to provide for ourselves, unable to discern for ourselves outside of God. And that's when you realize it, when you are in the desert. So whatever self-sufficiency you had, like I'm a fighter, I can make it through the situation. I've done it before. Whatever, whatever self-saving mentality you have, it will be starved out in the desert. You can only go so long like that. There's no food, when there's no water, when there's nothing to sustain you, no amount of but I am a mighty woman of God. No amount of that is going to save you at that moment. And that's one of the reasons why God brings us to the desert to starve out our self sufficiency and our human ingenuity. We need to reach the end of our rope. We need to hit that rock bottom. We need to see that our idols are unable to save us. And finally, why the desert 
It reminds us that this is not our final destination. This is not our final destination. In a grand and cosmic way, we are pilgrims and sojourners in this land, and this is actually not our home. This life here on earth, on this side of eternity, is a desert of sorts. This is not the promised land. This side of eternity is not the promised land. It's an extended exodus in search for the ultimate promised land. That's what this life is. So if there's anywhere in our mind or anywhere in our heart, this thought of, you know, if a breakthrough, or I just need life would be perfect. Like, I, I just need this financial breakthrough, or I just need to be reconciled with this person, or I just need this career path to work out. I just need this project to work out. I just need this fixed in my life. If we think that that's going to be the magic bullet that will get us to the promised land on this side of eternity, we are wrong. This side of eternity will always have brokenness, will always have fallenness because we're still not yet in the promised land. And this is something that we need to think about soberly. I feel like I've crushed a lot of people's dreams just now. <laughs> we need to be very sober-minded about this because sometimes, sometimes in, a, in our like, zeal to be like, man, God's going to pull through and then things will pan out and everything's going to be great and my life will be fulfilled and my calling, I'm going to enter into it. And all these things, we have this idea that on this side of eternity, we're going to taste perfection. We're going to taste a time or a season where everything is going to be perfect. The problem with that is that it cannot be perfect, number one, because it's a fallen world. Number two, it's because the perfect one hasn't fully come. So this entire life, sorry to paint it this way, downer, it's a lot of desert. If there's a lot of deliverance, it means there's a lot of desert, right? But this is the light at the end of the tunnel. We are headed toward something of a completely different order, something that we've only foretasted in the best moments here on the side of eternity. So this is, this is something that we need to try to, you know, employ our imagination as well as we can. Imagine like the most perfect moment you've had in this life, like perfect weather, perfect people around you, perfect music, perfect coffee. Like, I don't know what your perfect day looks like. Okay. So imagine just like freeze that moment in time. That is garbage compared to the glory that we will experience someday. And that's something that we need to get into our hearts and into our minds because we're so easily satisfied by things on this side of eternity. We need to understand that even the highest of highs, even the best of moments on this side of eternity, they will pale in comparison to the eternity that is ahead for us. The reason why we need to believe this is it'll give us resilience to push through whatever it is that we need to push through. And second is it will give us an appetite for that which is eternal. We're so complacent and so easily satisfied with lesser things, like we're stuffing ourselves with junk food. Like, like imagine all we have to eat on this side of eternity is goldfish crackers. Okay. And you're stuffing yourself with goldfish crackers until you're about to puke. Okay. And somebody's trying to explain to you there's steak on the other side. And you're like, what is a steak? You know, it's like that kind of leap 
it's what we experience here on this, in this side of eternity. It's a, what we have ahead for us, a completely different order. The delight, the satisfaction, the joy, the freedom, all those things that we get to somewhat foretaste in this life, it will be amplified, heightened, and perpetuated for all eternity and the eternity to come. And we need to keep this in mind because often we treat this life as like this is all there is to it. This is all I have. YOLO, you know? YOLO is so not true. You get to live once and then live forever, right? So you don't get to live once. This is, this is just a foretaste. The good things in this life, it's only a foretaste of the things that are up ahead. And so although this is a bit of a downer and a bit of a killjoy, there is a promised land ahead for us. After that, after that passage, then Isaiah goes on to say the wild jackals and the owls. So creation, they will, I missed a word there. It will bow down and worship God because he provides water in the desert and streams in the wasteland. He is the kind of God that is sufficient, that is enough, that provides, that is a people's shepherd, is a good father to his people. And he will show himself to be his people's creator, their shaper, their redeemer, their leader, their chooser, their former, their refiner, deliverer, so that they may proclaim my praise. This is what ultimately God is after. In the middle of the desert, as he splits the sea once again, only to let us pass through unscathed, then only to crush our enemies, the people of God begin to sing to God once again. We see this in the book of Exodus, actually. So Moses and Miriam, as soon as they get through the Red Sea, they burst into song. Can you imagine the sound of a million people bursting into song? That's what the book of Exodus talks about. In fact, the book of Hosea talks about it also. It says, therefore, I'm now going to allure her, allure her being Israel. I'll lead her into the desert, speak tenderly there to her. I'll give her back her vineyards, make the Valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she will sing. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. God is calling us to proclaim his praise. And this would be a great ending. And I could end here and everybody could go home and give each other high fives. And yes, we're doing a new thing. Okay. That, that would be a great way to end, but there's a, but, and if you have it on your Bibles, you'll see that it's not just one verse, but it's verse upon verse upon verse. And it's this last part yet. You have not called upon me. Oh, Jacob. After all that saving, after all that splitting the seas, opening up the deserts, defeating enemy armies, raining down manna from heaven, rebuilding, tearing down and rebuilding again the city of God and the temple and all those things. After all of that, after every exile and every way back from exile, there's still God's indictment. And it is this, you have not called upon me, O Jacob. There's something in us that rejects God as our salvation. And this is what the Bible calls sin nature. It's almost like gravity. We can't help but kind of like to veer off into it. We gravitate towards self-sufficiency, self-glorification, self-saving efforts. We see this in the Bible when like God does an amazing thing and the people of God are like, oh my goodness, you're the Lord our God. We will never betray you again. We'll never have any other gods. 
two pages later, or even like two columns later, they're back in idolatry. You're like, oh, wow, that was very short-lived. You don't just see it there. You see it in your own life, hopefully, right? No? Is it just me? Like, when, when I, I'm flipping through my journal, it takes just two pages, right? I'm like, oh, my gosh, God spoke to me this way. This is amazing. Like, I'm so filled with faith. Like, God is doing amazing things. Two pages later, it's like, God has left me. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Where are you, oh, Lord? <laughs> It's like as bipolar as it gets, you know, that's human nature. We are engineered and designed because of our sin nature to gravitate towards self-glorification, self-sufficiency, rejection towards God. And this is ultimately why God himself had to come down 600 years after this prophecy was written to people who are so broken so dead in their sins, so lost in their blindness that nothing short of God himself coming down to bear their sins upon a cross upon his own body could save them. And this is not just Israelites. This is you and I. No amount of opening up seas, closing up seas, you know, moving mountains, you know, stuff raining down from heaven. No amount of that could have saved us. Nothing would have kept us in the place of worshiping this God. And so God himself had to come down. This is where Christianity is wildly divergent from any other religion on earth in all of human history. Because while all other religions speak of humanity reaching up towards a God with whatever it is, it can be a scale of morality it could be good works of, or statements, paint that, or sacrifices offered to appease a God, while all religions paint that as the only pathway to salvation and to God. Christianity is the only religion that speaks of a God who came down, reached down for mankind. He humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's the only religion that speaks of a God who washed our feet, who bore our sins, who died our death, that we would find resurrection life in him. No other God in all of human history, no matter what kind of religion you throw, no other God would trade places with broken mankind. And yet Jesus, as he hung on the cross for sins he didn't commit, he took on our fallenness, our death, our sin in exchange for his life. This is the God that we worship and this is the gospel. So if we look back to this verse that we were focusing on for the last couple of weeks, this reminds us that we need God. It needs to be God to open up a way in the desert, streams in the wasteland. That once we reach the end of our human endeavors and our man-made programs and our own efforts to fix things, that God is a God who delights in showing mercy to his people. This is a passage that was so pivotal and so formative to the identity of our church. And it isn't just speaking of God delivering Israelites out of Babylonian captivity. It's ultimately speaking about a God who makes dead things alive. It's a God who paid with his own blood in order for us to have a way in the desert and streams and the wasteland. And this is the God that we worship. 
the God that leads us to call, calls us to leave behind the past, the sin, the death, the brokenness, in order for us to experience new life, new hope, and new resurrection. This is the God that we worship. So maybe my question to you today, you know, I asked three weeks ago when we talked about what are the lessons that we learned in the wilderness and ask this question. Sometimes we believe that following God will help us avoid sidestep the wilderness, but what if he's leading us straight into it? That's the question that we asked three weeks ago. My question today is what if he doesn't take away the desert? What if he doesn't take it away? Perhaps that's the point. He won't. It doesn't mean life is going to suck from here. on out. that's not what I'm saying. Right. But what if he doesn't take away the wilderness? He doesn't take away the desert, but he'll open up a way in it. He won't take away hardships. He'll give us mercy, strength, and grace to get through it. That's kind of the Christian walk in a nutshell. We're not asking God to take away pain. We're not asking God to take away hardship, persecution, inconvenience. We're asking God, give us the strength to be able to walk through it. And for that, we need God. If he doesn't take away the desert, will you still follow him? Not because the deciding factor is your own comfort, but because you're following your shepherd and you follow wherever he leads. Now, I'm going to end just with this. And this is actually an illustration I gave. um, I challenged our community with three, maybe four years ago. And this was at a JPM. That's a name you haven't heard in a long time. Um, and this is something that still strikes, strikes close to home. And it is the story about an Indian king, an Indian governor, who came into power when he was really young. Like eight, maybe like 12 is really young when he came into power. And this is while uh, British Empire had a hold over India. And while that was happening, this little young boy who was the ruler of India at that time, they found this incredible gemstone. And what he decided to do with it was give it to the queen, give it to the British queen. And he did that. And then many years passed. Many years passed, he became a grown man, and he went to visit England for first time. And he says that he, when he went there, he met the monarch, and he, um, you know, interacted. And, and, and after all the pleasantries, he asked, you know, I remember having gifted you a gemstone. It's like really precious, one of a kind in the entire world. There's nothing, nothing like it in, in all of the world. Can I go see it? And they said, okay. You know, they're like, is he here to take it back? So they cautiously take him to see it, to see the display. And he looks at it and he says, can I hold it in my hand? And they're more nervous now. They're like, guards? <laughs> you know. So they're like, okay, they take it out of the display. They put it in his hand. And he holds it there. And he sees how much it weighs and how much it shines and how valuable it is. And this is what he tells the monarch. He says, when I gave this to you, I was just a little boy. 
I had no idea of how valuable, how precious this was. But now that I am a man, now I know how much this weighs and how much this is worth and the fact that there's nothing like this in the whole world. Now that I'm a man, I choose to give it to you once again. And that's what he said to the monarch. And this illustration was given by a pastor I heard a long time ago. And this is what he said. How, how similar is this to our surrender before God? I don't know when you were saved. I don't know when you started following the Lord. But how many of us knew what we were getting into? Not many of us. Many of us were too young to know the ins and outs, the fine print at the bottom. You know, when we first got saved, we were like, I'll follow you anywhere. I'll do anything. Take my life. Take me to wherever, you know. And then the inconvenience happens that you're like, whoa, I actually don't take me anywhere. You know, I'm not going to follow you everywhere. Just, you know, like hold up a bit. So we give this precious life to God. We surrender it wholeheartedly to God, whether we understand how much it's worth or not. And time and time again throughout our lives, we're given this opportunity. Will we choose to give it over to him now that we know how much it's worth? Now that we know that there are hardships along the way, there's going to be times where we're going to have to say no to things. There's going to be times where we have to sacrifice things. There's going to be times where it's going to be very inconvenient to follow him. There's going to be times when he's going to lead us exactly where we don't want to go. Will we still choose to follow him then knowing, knowing full well now, or so we think, right? Knowing full well now what it's going to cost us. And this is something that I wanted to ask you for you personally, perhaps invite you to deal with the Lord. Perhaps there's new surrender that God is asking for. Perhaps we've started to grab onto that gemstone. We're like, I don't know if that was a good idea. Put it back in my pot, you know? Perhaps we've started to clench our fist around something that we've previously given freely over to God. And perhaps his invitation to us is now that you know how much it's costs, it's going to cost you, would you still choose to give it over again? This is a question that I have for Nephilim as a community as well. You know, 10 years ago, we didn't know what this verse meant. We didn't know what would be ahead for us in 10 years. After all the, you know, the pain, hardship, farewells, all, all the expansion and then downsizing, all the incredible gymnastics that we've been doing like last year, all the sanctuary moves and all the, you know, sad goodbyes, all these things that we've had to go through as a community, are we choosing to surrender to God again? Knowing perhaps ahead for us, maybe there's more desert. Maybe there is. Maybe there's going to be more hardships up ahead. Maybe what we think was a hardship from this last year is not. Who knows? But all I know is that I want my heart to still be in that same posture. Whatever comes, for me and for this community, whatever comes, I want us to still be in that place of, I've given it all to you, God. I want to give it to you again. I want to trust you again. I want to believe that what you have ahead for us is exactly according to your schedule, to your planning, to your will, to your purposes, whether it be good things or hard things, whether it be both good and hard things. 
whatever's up ahead, will our hearts still be in that same posture of surrender and trust? And that's what I would love to see in my life. That's what I want to see in your life. That's what I want to see in the life of this community as well. Hearts that are surrendered over to God.